Hey, it's Scott Orn at Cruise Consulting. And before we get to a terrific podcast with John Prentice at Letter Capital, quick shout out to Rippling. Rippling, payroll benefits and a phenomenal IT integration that helps you spin up new employees. You provision them. They're automatically able to access web services that your business uses. You don't have to spend a ton of time provisioning them. And if you know, unfortunately, if you have to let people go, you can deprovision them too. So super powerful. It saves, I think it will save about three hours per person hired, which I know our IT services firm charges like 140 bucks. That's $420 uh, for every person you hire, which is totally crazy. Rippling did it automatically. And they also have a fantastic payroll service. Uh, they also handle contractor payments. It's just a great product. Shout out to the team at Rippling. Uh, and also a shout out to the team at Cruise Consulting. Thanks for making it so I can do this podcast. We have 70 people now at Cruise. It's been phenomenal, phenomenal growth. We work with startups. We do all the startup accounting. We do all the startup taxes. We do all the financial modeling, budget actuals, all that stuff you need. And this is really the season for taxes. Uh, not only just tax returns, but R&D tax credits. We are super strong at that. I think we did four and a half million dollars of R&D tax credits. So we saved our companies that much money in burn last year, which is crazy. So shout out to Cruz. And now to John Prentice of Letter Capital. Thanks. So when your troubles are mounting in tax or accounting, you go to Cruise. Founders and friends. It's Cruise Consulting. Founders and friends with your host, Scotty Old. Welcome, John Prentice, to Founders and Friends Podcast with Scott Orn. It's great to have you, John. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks, Scott. Pleasure to be here. So John and I have been friends for a couple of years, and John works at Ladder Capital, one of the big lenders to startups. And I thought with COVID-19 going on and the world uh, moving and changing so fast, I thought we better have John on to kind of refresh the Ladder Capital story and also talk about how the firm's handling new deal flow, existing deal flow. Uh, in this new world we're living in. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe you can start by just sharing your background with the audience and how you got to Ladder Capital. Sure. So I'm born and raised um, from the Seattle area originally. I spent a couple years working and living down in the Bay Area, where I actually worked at Siemens and their corporate venture group, doing partnerships and investments um, with startups. So at Siemens Venture Capital and another group of theirs that did, um, or was Siemens Venture Capital at the time another group that does more kind of technology partnering. Um, it was mostly energy smart grid. It was the work. So I did that for a couple of years, really liked the corporate VC side as far as kind of interfacing between a big company and a startup. Definitely very interesting, but can be frustrating at times as far as kind of the different speeds. Um, so did that for a couple of years and kind of wanted to work at a startup, but I was still interested in this kind of VC kind of transactional work. And I wanted to come back to Seattle because I'm from Seattle originally. So I started connecting with all the VCs in Seattle, which there's really kind of five of them. It's a pretty small market compared to the Bay Area, obviously. So I started talking to folks around town. And one of the VCs I got connected with was Voyager Capital, which actually had done a lot of co-investment with Siemens on some of the smart grid side stuff that we've done. Um, so I got connected with one of the partners there, Eric Benson. And he actually is the one that directed me to Letter Capital. Um, so originally it was kind of the interest of working with Voyager Capital, but he said, hey, I have this really interesting portfolio company that we're incubating right now called Lighter Capital, which he was technically founder for. The idea actually came from um, one of his business school professors, who Clayton Christensen, who obviously passed away earlier this year. 
Um, and it was this idea of applying um, royalty revenue sharing arrangement to other industries besides kind of the traditional where you see it, you know, oil, pharmaceutical, um, media, right, with movies. Um, they thought, gee, you know, this could be interesting if applied to venture finance or tech finance. Maybe this is a potentially kind of disruptive financing model. So he, Clayton Christensen, put out an academic white paper on it. Eric Benson, who was a general partner of Voyager, read this white paper and we started talking to some people around town and connected locally in Seattle to a gentleman by the name of Andy Sack, who ran Techstars Seattle, Founders Co-op Seattle, a very kind of well-known Seattle area angel investor. Uh, the two of them started talking and thought, gee, you know, this might have interesting wings as a business model. So Voyager Capital actually seeded the company as the original investor. So we ourselves are VC backed. And then Andy Sack was the founding CEO. So that was in 2010. The company kind of got off to a little bit of a kind of an interesting start, shall we say, as far as kind of experimenting with the financing model and what worked and kind of didn't work. Andy Sack actually stepped down in 2012. And so they brought in a new CEO who kind of restarted the company. And then I came on board after I connected with Eric Benson in 2014 as the first kind of sales um, relationship person when they really wanted to start driving the origination growth. So you've had five good years there. It's been a wild ride, but you guys have grown quite a bit in those five years, right? Yeah. It's been um, interesting to see it from progress where it is or where it started to kind of where it is now. Um, it's interesting, right? Because we're working with other startups, but we're also technically a venture-backed entity. So there's definitely the pressure to keep growing the top line, just like any sort of software startup. Um, but obviously as a lender, it puts you in this interesting position where you want to grow originations, you want to grow the portfolio, but you don't want to grow it in the wrong way. So kind of being fair and balanced yeah. about that. So Yeah. So starting, that's the hard thing about a lender is you want to grow as fast as possible, but you can't grow. It's like, it's like being on one of those, the bachelorette, you want to be, don't want to be there for the wrong reasons kind right. of thing. And so we've, you and I have seen a million lending companies blow up over the years, but that's what's been really interesting about Lighter. You guys, you haven't grown too fast. You've grown at a really nice pace, but you're also probably the biggest kind of non-warrant, non-bank lender in the market, right? Yeah, we've definitely kind of made a name for ourselves, particularly in the non-equity sponsored category. I would say there might be some other lenders there that are larger by overall kind of maybe potentially portfolio size in principle deployed. But as far as kind of number of companies we've worked with, we're probably the, the largest. I mean, SaaS Capital is another one yeah. uh, that we see a lot and are close with. They probably also have a pretty sizable portfolio at this point, um, but they're doing larger deals, right? They're slightly up market from us. Average check size is, is much larger too. Um, we'll work with earlier stage companies than they will. And then we'll kind of work with them all the way up from, you know, could be 200,000 in annualized revenue all the way up to maybe 20 million in annualized revenue. Wow. That's amazing. And, and one of the reasons that um, you guys are, one of the things you're kind of known for in the industry is, is not demanding warrants. Like most typical venture mm -hmm. lending firms, like Lighthouse where I worked, always wants a piece of the equity, which, which you understand, like they want a piece of the upside. But Lighter actually has a different model. So you guys are more kind of interest-based uh, instead of equity-based, right? Yeah. So the model to date has not to uh, take warrants or any sort of equity kickers or success fee structure. Earlier on, we actually had more of those. We kind of moved away from it for a couple of reasons. It's, it's hard when you have a larger portfolio of just kind of tracking all those warrants. And I think especially in the non-equity sponsor category, 
it's really kind of hard to value those and understand, well, you know, if it's kind of a lifestyle company and these entrepreneurs don't actually want to sell the business, is that warrant actually going to amount to anything? I would say not having the warrant piece does really resonate with a lot of entrepreneurs that are sensitive to the dilution and control piece. That said, I mean, we consciously are trying to move up market and actually even thinking about how we can do more traditional venture debt structures that are equity sponsored and just moving up to work with larger companies. So we're actually thinking about for those kind of companies, maybe we do have a warrant component. It, it makes us much more competitive with a lot of these other venture debt structures out there that these companies yeah. are, are more accustomed to seeing. It, when you say more competitive, is that because you can effectively lower your interest rate a little bit if you're if you're factoring in a warrant like at, at a later, you know, more Series A, Series B type of totally. company? Totally. So right now, I would say our interest rates are in line with most venture debt, mes debt, and on bank. Um, or maybe a little bit higher, but then we don't have the warrant piece. So that's where we're pretty competitive. But um, if we really want to go head to head with like a WTI or you know any big venture debt lender, I think you need a more traditional venture debt structure where it's lower on the rate and then you have the warrant piece on the back end. So Yep, that makes total sense. But I think we, well, we've seen product market fit for you guys in our client, the cruise client base is there's a lot, we have a lot of SaaS companies who've mm-hmm. raised you know, a couple million or three to four million and they seem to really love working with you. And we've sent quite a few over your way. And it's, it's been a good experience for them. So that's that's why I wanted to have you on the podcast because our, our clients are actually asking for lighter capital a lot more often. Cool. And the value prop seems to really fit there. No, it's great. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's uh, one that we just worked with uh, actually as of a couple of weeks ago that came introduced to me. Yeah. yeah. And I would say, I mean, one item that probably differentiates us from other venture debt lenders is just the kind of credit profile what we're looking for. In a way, we prefer bootstrap companies, right? These some these are mostly non-equity sponsored. We prefer the companies that are more capital efficient. You know, they're break even or closer to break even. Maybe they don't have, you know, 100% year over year growth, but they can get to break even or they're already at break even and they're growing a little bit slower. Um, and that's fine. And especially since we're not really counting on the, the warrant piece on the back end for part of a return, we're kind of less concerned of understanding, oh, their market is this big, so therefore the warrant's going to be this valuable sort of thing. And where do you see, like, maybe you can talk about Ladder Capital's funding base and and where you draw capital, because I think it's always important, I tell our companies this, it actually, the funding base actually really helps you understand your lender Mm -hmm. and what they care about. You know, sometimes people have uh, revolvers with other banks or things like that. How are you guys financed? As I mentioned at the beginning, so... We ourselves are a venture-backed company or private equity-backed company, kind of fall under the definition of fintech or even specialty finance. So we have equity financing that we've raised to date, technically through a Series C, right? Through various, um, some strategics and Voyager Capital out of Seattle has been a major investor too, and supporter of us, um, some super angels too over the years. So that's really funny in the operational side. So my time, your marketing team's time, we have a underwriting team too, right? Their work. We also have a tech team too that's actually developing more kind of the underwriting um, software side of the business that we're doing. And that's allowing us to do these loans at a pretty high volume and do the ongoing kind of payment and monitoring of them at a higher volume than maybe a lot of other venture debt lenders are. Uh, So that's funding all the operational side. And outside of that, we really set up like a private credit fund where we have our own limited partners. Hmm. So to date, we've had three funds technically. And then we have um, more recently, uh, we closed a $100 million fund with a group 
based in Southern California called HCG. And this is all public. There was a press release that just went out about this. So that's a new $100 million fund that we just closed. So we're now deploying that fund. And then prior to that, we had a $100 million fund from a group based in the Bay Area called CIM, Community Investment Management. And both these groups are mm. fund of funds, you know, traditional fund of funds, collection of you know, family offices, endowments throughout the country that are really interested in alternative specialty finance companies, um, alternative lending models. They, are, I would say, are definitely more, a little more conservative, which is where I think kind of our lending profile resonates with them as far as working with, you know, these closely held B2B SaaS companies with good recurring revenue models closer to break even. They're not the kind of higher burn companies that you typically see. So that's been the funding sources to date. They also have a social impact investment mandate too. Um, so we actually re-report a lot of data back to them as far as kind of job creation, um, percentage of female founders funded. They're really interested in geographically too, where we're funding companies because it's not just West Coast, um, Silicon Valley focused, whether Seattle, San Francisco, right? New York, or kind of any of these major hubs. It's really companies throughout the country. So, you know, Rocky Mountain, Carolinas, where maybe there's not as much venture funding. There's not an angel investor on every corner like there is in San Francisco. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, the, and, the, and the tech banks aren't as active too. So they're really interested in, um, in that data too, as far as kind of social impact and what we're doing. So I would say that's really a, a core component too, as far as kind of how we think. That's fantastic. And Maybe it's, it's worth spending just like a minute on your repayment model because I think that's pretty unique. You know, a lot of venture yeah. lenders have like a set amortization payment, but you guys, you have a couple different options in the way that borrowers can pay letter capital back. Yeah. So um, traditionally, we started with this royalty revenue-based financing model where we would provide funding upfront, technically a term debt structure. And the way that loan is repaid is based as a percentage of future monthly revenue or actually net cash receipts. So it's truly a royalty revenue sharing arrangement where companies are paying us anywhere from 1% to 9% of whatever their net cash receipts is that particular month uh, until they hit a predefined amount over a set term, typically a three to four year term. So there's a repayment cap or we call it a repayment cap that we're looking for by the end of that three to four year term. Typically, it's anywhere from 1.3 to maybe 1.5, maybe 1.6x on the very high end by end of that three to four years. So meaning if we funded a company, you know, 100,000 or let's use a million dollars, right, up front, and we were looking for a repayment cap of 1.3 by end of that three-year, 36-month term, we're looking for 1.3 million. So once I hit that predefined amount through that royalty revenue sharing arrangement, that's when that uh, structure is paid off. Oh. And then we're not going to have uh, uh, the warrants on top of it. We're not going to usually don't have financial based covenants either. Too. I didn't realize it was so precise on the 1.3, you know, multiple. That's that makes tons of sense. And maybe we can. Trans- yeah, that was just that was just one example. Oh, one example. Okay, sorry. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was yeah. like, wow, 1.3 every time. <laughs> so that's one example yeah. of, and that can fluctuate depending on how risky the company is or what the profile is. Right? Totally. And then beyond that, we'll do. Traditional term debt structures too, where um, full air time is in term loan, you know, 36, 48 month term, set interest rate, set monthly payment. Obviously with that, you're going to have a more fixed repayment amount than the relative revenue-based financing model. So there's different advantages, disadvantages, depending on the company and the stage, if there's any element of seasonality. So ed tech companies, for example, really like our royalty revenue-based financing model because their uh, their cash collections are so lumpy, depending on 
um, the academic calendar. And then we'll also we just start doing lines of credit too for short-term working capital needs, um, which is pretty unique as a non-bank lender. Mm, that's uh, really interesting. What does that too. instrument look like? So it's a true line of credit revolver, right? Generally, as far as kind of interest rates, it's slightly discounted from our term loan or revenue-based financing structure, kind of low teens to high teens. Don't have financial-based covenants with that typically too. And it is a year-long facility and it's really meant for shorter-term working capital needs. So, you know, if a company has a good accounts receivable base, because it is an AR-based line of credit, will lend on average about 80% of companies average AR of the past 12 months. And if a company has larger customers that are slow to pay, you know, Fortune 500 companies, um, we determine the availability based on that. And then they can make up to two draws a month on that line of credit. And then they only pay interest um, when they make draws and they're running a balance, right? Um, and then theoretically, if they don't utilize the line of credit, they don't actually pay anything. So it is, which is kind of unique compared to a lot of line of credits. There is an origination fee on the front end. That's just to cover some of our fixed costs. And then that's a year long facility, um, but really addressed for more kind of shorter term working capital needs where the revenue based financing, the term loan is meant to be for more growth capital. That's, I had no idea you guys actually had that instrument. That's really powerful because it is nice for companies to be able to borrow and repay at their own leisure. And so you guys make that yep. really accessible. That's that's really cool. Well, maybe we can transition to just the COVID-19 whole whole yeah. thing and the environment we're in. And what are you guys seeing? Are you guys open for business? Are you doing more deals? Is it a great time for you? Is it not a great time for you? How are you, how are you reading the market? Yeah. I've been having a lot of these discussions recently. It's interesting, right? I mean, obviously for everybody, it was very sudden as far as kind of how the market shifted. I can certainly say we have companies that have been impacted um, especially in verticals that have really been impacted. So we have companies that are selling to bars and restaurants, you know, companies that are doing tourism, kind of travel, booking, that sort of stuff has been pretty tough. Um, so we're really trying to work with a lot of our clients through, um, through this time right now. Uh, so that's been an impact we've seen in our portfolio. We have some companies that really haven't been impacted Maybe you know pipeline or deals are moving a little bit slower through their pipeline, but that's it. And believe it or not, we have some companies that have actually benefited from this, as far as kind of what it's meant, um, people changing behavior and people working from home. So you know, companies that provide remote collaboration tools, right? Their business is booming. Companies that have edtech solutions to enable online distance learning, you know, their phones ringing off the hook, delivery services, um, any of those. So. It's kind of balanced um, across the portfolio as far as kind of what we're seeing. You know, I've had companies too that were in the process of raising an equity round or trying to close on an equity round. I've been hearing a lot about people getting term sheets pulled or the VCs are coming back and saying, hey, we just want to put things on hold right now. Our LPs, um, you know, don't want to commit capital at this moment. So I, I've been hearing a lot of that. Um, so I do think, I mean, on the startup fundraising side, I do think the market is going to get a lot tougher. I think a lot of that liquidity is going to dry up or kind of already has started to, which for us as, you know, companies that maybe don't want to raise VC or they want to wait another year until the market improves, I think actually does present a good opportunity for us since we don't already need a VC and a company to do any lending. Yeah, that's a great point. You also touched on something I think is worth, you know, explaining that the LPs don't want to do a lot of capital calls for a venture fund or is, is actually important to mm -hmm. understand. And, it's 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 one of these. There's a lot of VC firms saying, "Hey, we're open for business," and and they are, 
but their LPs are kind of quietly hurting because their whole portfolio has shrunk. And so every time they're doing yep. a capital call for a venture fund, they're effectively selling some other security that's depressed to fund that capital call. And so we actually saw this in 2008 where our LPs were hitting our capital calls, but they were kind of like, Hey, they're very polite about it. They're like, can you slow down the capital calls? Like we don't want to, mm-hmm. we don't want to sell too much at the bottom. We want to let the markets recover a little bit. So I, th- I think that's a phenomenal. And, and people, you know, everyone talks about venture capitalists, but the LPs are really kind of the muscle behind the scenes that fund the whole industry. And so I, am seeing the same thing and I, I mm-hmm. haven't heard of like LPs pulling out or anything like that. They're just, everyone just wants to kind of proceed with caution right now. Yeah. I've even heard from a couple of VCs and other lenders that are really just putting things on hold right now. Yeah. They're not doing deals right now. That's not us. We're still um, funding companies right now. I would say for companies in verticals that are impacted by this, you know, we're probably, we're definitely holding off on that right now um, until we kind of figure out what the market looks like and getting through the next couple months. But um, companies that, you know, benefit from this trend for better or worse, or aren't really seeing any adverse impact, we're still originating loans. That's awesome. Well, and I know our, like I said, our portfolio of clients is asking for you and I've become a big believer in your model. It's super entrepreneur friendly. It's like folks don't even know how many kind of non-VC backed companies that are actually really good companies that actually just need to access capital. And so you guys have become the go-to source. And I really like your model of, hey, you could raise VC if you wanted, but why not take a million dollars from lighter capital and hold off for a little while and improve your valuation over the next six months? And then go raise VC capital. I mean, that is like that to me is is a perfect model to follow if you're if you're if you're a startup. Yeah, it's all about providing optionality, right? Of maybe you don't raise VC now, or you don't raise VC at all, or you just want to delay the point where you're going to raise venture capital until you can get to a higher run rate, higher growth rate, and the terms and valuation to be better. Um, and you're really just going to have more leverage. I think, especially in this market, right? If you can buy yourself, you know, six months or a year until the market and the economy hopefully turns the corner. You know, I, I think that's wise. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, John, I appreciate you coming on. This has been awesome. And like I said, you guys have a great funding source for startups, whether they're venture backed or not. And we're seeing a lot of, of folks, uh, we're pushing them your way. And I look forward to doing many deals together in the future. Yeah, thanks, Scott. Appreciate it. Yeah, stay safe in Seattle. We were talking before we turned the mics on that your wife is a hero and doing a lot of uh, statistical work in, in the medical community. So. Nice. Be nice to her when she comes home at night. Give her a back massage and uh, make her dinner and make her feel special and thank her on our behalf. <laughs> I will. Thank you very much. Awesome. All right, buddy. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Yeah. So when your troubles are mounting in tax or accounting, you go to Cruise. Founders and friends. It's Cruise Consulting. Founders and friends with your host, Scotty Old.